On the night of July 20th, 1984, Father John Kerrigan walked out of a bakery in Ronan, Montana, where he'd been chatting with some of the parishioners of the Sacred Heart Catholic Church, where he had just arrived as the new priest two days before. At the suggestion of his new flock, he struck out on a walk to acquaint himself with his new surroundings and to take in the summer evening in the Mission Mountains. He was never seen nor heard from again, and what happened to him that night and in the days and years that followed remains a mystery to this day. Welcome to Montana Murders, Notorious and Unsolved, a podcast brought to you by the Montana Mint, where author Brian D'Ambrosio and I will take a new look at some of the most infamous and mysterious true crime stories in Montana's history. I'm John Hooks. In this first episode, The Vanishing of a Priest, that still leaves more questions than answers 36 years later. We'll talk about Father Kerrigan's disappearance in the middle of a summer of fear in the Flathead, the case's striking similarities to a murder on the other side of the country, and the equally mysterious story of Paul Shama, the lead investigator in the case who also seemed to vanish shortly after Father Kerrigan, and his theory of what happened that July night that has never been reported before. We'll start off with Brian taking us back to the last night Father Kerrigan was seen alive. The last sighting of Kerrigan would have been shortly before about 11 o'clock. You know, he walks into a, a bakery on 4th Avenue Southwest in, in Ronan. It's a, it's a Friday evening. Um, Kerrigan is about to start ministering to his 13th church um, He's uh, about to deliver his first sermon as like the permanent pastor at uh, Sacred Heart Parish. And he had just transferred over to Ronan from Plains, is that right? It's true. Yeah, yeah it's true. You know, and and uh, it looks like uh, Kerrigan um, had been going from you know parish to parish. And again, it looks like the the diocese listed um, years later when they released some information about Kerrigan, they had mentioned that he had. This was his 13th church in the, in the, the course of about 30, 30 years. It seems like he had a tendency to, to work um, exclusively, if not, um, in, in not, if not solely, in rural areas and, and rural parishes. Um, he wasn't in Plains for very long. Um, so we know that, you know, we know that his assignment is going to be in, in Ronan. Um, we know he's last seen at, the, at this uh, bakery. Um, right about before about 11 o'clock on a Friday night. Um, There's some locals in there and uh, Kerrigan comes in and, you know, and he's uh, quite chummy with people. Um, you know, he starts, he introduces himself, um, greets a couple of the late night gatherers um, of locals. Um, he's dressed in a red shorts. 
a white t-shirt. He's got on tennis shoes. Presumably, uh, you know, Kerrigan is going to go out for some type of jog or, or run. Um, he's 58 years old at, at, at the time. To give like a physical description, I mean, Kerrigan is about six feet, you know, 200 pounds. Um, you know, he appears to be you know, physically fit. Um, and apparently, so, you know, so Kerrigan comes in and he starts to talk amiably um, with some of the patrons and uh, tells them that he's kind of enjoying the, the brisk summer air and the summer breeze. And uh, he wanted to get acquainted with Brunan by maybe, you know, perhaps taking an evening walk. Um, uh, and then he says, well, the following day is going to be a, a, a busy day, you know. Um, he says that uh, he's got uh, a funeral to attend up in Plains, and he's got a wedding to attend up in Plains. It's going to be a full, exciting day. Um, and he heads over to the to the Red Brick Catholic Rectory that's next to his new church. Um, and he is uh, he's never, never seen again. What's really striking to me about this story uh, is how many of these totally cinematic moments there are throughout it. These like characters and, and scenes and images that can't help but pull you into this like specific moment in time. And this is kind of the first one I think of in this story where the next day Father Kerrigan is supposed to give a sermon uh, for the 5.30 evening mass at Sacred Heart Church. And they haven't had a priest there since April. So about a hundred people show up and they're eager, you know, to meet this mysterious new pastor from Plains that's just arrived. But then he's late for his first mass. And you can just hear, you know, you can hear in your mind the grumbling starting up. Some new priest, huh? Who'd they send over here? And then, you know, somebody calls the rectory and, and knocks on the door, but there's no answer. And he's not just late now, you know, he's a no-show. But people blow it off, um, just assuming, you know, he must have got stuck at, his, at the wedding in Plains that he was going to, uh, couldn't make it back. But uh, we'll, we'll see him tomorrow morning. But, you know, there's no possible way a priest can miss Sunday Mass, too. And then you can just kind of picture, you know, the, the minutes are ticking by on Sunday morning, and he still hasn't shown up. And, you know, the whispers start to dart through the crowd and, and you can feel the mood change in the room and you can feel this slow collective realization dawning on everybody that, you know, something isn't quite right here. Sunday night, it looks like Sunday night, the first phone calls from the parishioners are trickling into the Lake County Sheriff's Department. And on Monday, July 23rd, Father Kerrigan was legally declared missing. Um, and then there's a discovery that's particularly grisly. So we know we're moving from, some, from a missing person to something potentially far more um, sinister.
Father Kerrigan's sinister fate after a quick break. Hey everyone, John back on here. Hope you're all really enjoying the first episode of Montana Murders, Notorious and Unsolved, the podcast. Uh, We are a proud member of the burgeoning Montana Mint Podcast Network, which is a growing network of Montana-focused podcasts. Other shows on the network include the Montana Trivia Championship, which is a game show devoted entirely to our great treasure state. They have the Grizz Fan Podcast, which is devoted to all things Grizz football. And we also have the Montana Mint Sports Pod that covers the Cats, the Grizz, all things Big Sky Conference, and everything in between. You can find all of these shows on most major podcast apps, including whichever one you're listening to this show right now. And you can check out the Montana Mint on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for more. We're also brought to you by Morning Light Coffee in Great Falls. Operating since 1989, Morning Light is Montana's oldest family-owned coffee roaster, and they take pride in using responsibly sourced beans roasted daily on site, available for purchase online or in-store. You can stay basic this fall with a pumpkin spice latte or try their new nitro cold brew with pumpkin cold foam. They have responsibly spaced outdoor seating and drive-through available. Again, that is Morning Light Coffee Roasters on 1701 9th Avenue South in Great Falls. Check them out on Instagram at Morning Light Coffee Roasters, all one word. This episode is also brought to you by Berkshire Hathaway Home Services, Montana Properties in Missoula. If you're looking for a new home in Montana, contact Mike Nugent. Mike is a lifelong Montanan and will be an experienced partner to help you navigate these unprecedented markets. He can also help you find an agent anywhere in Montana. Berkshire Hathaway Home Services Montana Properties is Montana's leader in real estate, and nobody helps clients buy or sell more than they do. And you can put that experience to work for you. And remember, when it comes to real estate, the only bad question is a question you never asked. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Montana Murders, Notorious and Unsolved. We're picking up the story of Father John Kerrigan on the south shore of Flathead Lake, where somebody setting up a roadside fruit stand makes a pretty gruesome discovery. It's Father Kerrigan's bloody walking clothes, and they're found folded and stacked neatly by the side of the road. With some reports claiming that his wallet was tucked into his shirt pocket too, with one to two hundred dollars left in it. The scene posed some pretty grim new questions to law enforcement, who were led at the time by lead investigator Paul Shama. So, it looks like, you know, it's intentional. We've got clothes stacked along 
Highway 35. It's about five miles northeast of, of Polson. So we've got the turnout uh, along the, on the east shore of, of Flathead Lake. Um, so we've got, um, you know, we've got uh, abandoned, you know, abandoned clothes, but we also find, you know, an instrument of violence, uh, a, a wire hanger. Right. Um, you know, it's 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 splattered with blood. It's it's um, it, it's deformed, quote unquote. I think was the word that that uh, Lake County had used to describe the wire hanger. So we've got this object. Um, perhaps have been used to, to, to subdue the priest or hold him down or, or strangle him. So, so now we're getting, um, we're getting information coming in that makes us believe that we're dealing with something um, that's uh, quite, uh, quite ominous. About a week later, things start to change. The narrative starts to change a little more because the uh, the Chevy Impala mm, right. uh, that Father Kerrigan drove, so it's found at the base um, of the radio towers um, off of Skyline Drive. It's overlooking Polson, right about several, several miles away from from the rectory, and about a few miles south of where his uh, the bloodstained clothes, okay. the, you know, had been had been stacked. When investigators find Father Kerrigan's car, there are two things that immediately jump out to them. First, the car has been wiped clean of fingerprints. And second, the inside of the car is filled with blood. Like, truly covered in an amount of blood that leads some investigators to think it couldn't possibly come from just one person. It's got blood all over the interior. It's got blood all inside the trunk. It's got blood on the front seat. It's got blood on the passenger side door. I mean, spread across, you know, floorboards. I mean, uh, the trunk uh, apparently had a pillow that had just been saturated with with uh, with blood. There was a shovel that had blood Bloody all shovel, over it. Right. And then we go. Uh, another report says that the wallet was in the trunk stuff with more than a thousand dollars in cash so again we're getting a, you know a little bit of different yeah, information already what, some blurring some, facts and some yeah inconsistencies you know, yeah and, and that's how it works i mean we're coming you know um you know you put five people in a room at a press conference and mm-hmm. yeah i think you're bound to get six pieces of information that are going to be sure um, disseminated from those five people so It just to kind of set the stage a little bit. Mm-hmm. So we, you know, we've got a lot going on uh, in the Mission Valley kind of at that time. Sure. There's a lot of, you know, there was a, several frightening events that were unfolding in the area within kind of a week of that. Um, on the same day, you know, the Kerrigan went into the bakery. You know, that Friday night, um, there were four inmates who had fled in a state-owned vehicle from the. A minimum security unit mm. um, of the Montana State Prison at the Swan River Youth Camp. Um, two of the escapees kidnapped and attacked a woman in, in Evero. So now, uh, on July 22nd, you know, this is only days before Kerrigan 
goes missing. We've got an 18-year-old named Reed Nivens who murdered a 41-year-old woman in her Polson home. So we can come back to that too as a possible scenario and one that I think still could be, you know, would would be um, something to legitimately sort of, you know, explore when you're looking at like a a pool of suspects. I mean, perhaps not coincidental that an 18-year-old is incarcerated for murdering a 41-year-old woman in her home or arrested for that. So we're getting, this is not, this is a, a, a frightening, frightening time. You know, there's a lot of hearsay and rumors and suspicion. And, and uh, um, I mean, anytime any person goes missing, you're going to, there, there's going to be a, a miasma of fear. Well, yeah, yeah. And then, you know, and then you've got, you know, so there's some just very really peculiar, uh, you know, links, you know, you know, that, you seem to be valid once to start to go down as yeah, you kind of yeah. figure out what happened to Kerrigan. Um, and immediately, you know, there was thought that it could be connected to um, the disappearance of another priest. There was an Episcopal priest in Townsend a couple of right. years earlier, Reverend James Otis Anderson. He was last seen driving east on Highway 12 towards White Sulphur Springs. And that's on the morning of June the 13th, 1982 fails to show up for services at his church um so now we have two priests and it looks like kerrigan and otis are friends mm. which um starts to you know deepen the intrigue so right. in, sort of in, in these situations coincidences can't really just be coincidences yeah and uh, you know another coincidence would be that they work together in white yeah. sulfur springs so now both are gone yeah so we've got kerrigan yeah. gone so i think you know what happens is, you know, we do the, you know, the, the social autopsy, as they call it. We yeah. get the social autopsy of, of, of the father, of Father Kerrigan. We've got a lot of speculation. We've got an abundance of, of, of DNA evidence, DNA evidence, excuse me. But then we're looking at, um, um, where do we go? You know, and, and, mm-hmm. and, and there's, um, and, and it chills. I mean, so um, the red hot speculation cooled off quickly and sure. so it went from you know hot to cold and it never turned hot again mm. you know to, to oversimplify it yeah know? so so we've got well, uh, you know very little so we're at this point in the story where the investigation is cooling off And if you're Paul Shama or anyone else investigating the case, you're in a pretty difficult position. You have the missing priest and these two crime scenes that lead you to believe something pretty sinister is going on. And you're also stuck in this miasma of fear, as Brian called it. So where do you go from here? Well, if you're Paul Shama, you start looking for a motive. No money was stolen and Father Kerrigan's car and clothes were left where they could be found. So you think that you can probably rule out robbery or anything really random like that as a reason for the disappearance. But what could another motive possibly be? To try and figure that out, Shama starts looking into Kerrigan's life and his personal history. And remember that Kerrigan had just been transferred to Ronan and hadn't even given a sermon yet before he disappeared. So Shama really has to start from scratch. And this is where it seems like he starts to get really consumed by the case. 
because at first, it doesn't seem like there's anything there that would indicate a reason why somebody would want this priest dead. Kerrigan was born in Butte in 1926, and he stayed there, it seems like, until he went to a seminary for a few years in Seattle. And then he comes back to Butte in 1954 and is ordained at St. Patrick's Church there. But then it gets a little questionable, to say the least, because Shama pays the diocese in Helena a visit and learns that Kerrigan had a pretty notably transient tenure as a priest and had been shuttled to 13 different parishes in 30 years. These 13 parish assignments, we've got Butte, we've got him going to like uh, Dillon for a while, he's in Browning, he's in Bozeman, he's in Drummond, he's in White Sulphur, showed up, and then we get him, we'll bring him up to speed, we get him in uh, in Plains yeah. for, for about 40 years, but as I mentioned, it's like 1965 alone, he's in three separate places, he's in Butte, and he goes to, to Browning, and he goes to Bozeman. But it's not any of the Montana postings that piqued Shama's interests at this point, really. It's a relatively short period of time, just a year earlier in 1983, that Kerrigan had been sent to the Congregation of the Servants of the Paraclete in Jemez Springs, New Mexico. That congregation served as a retreat for clergy to deal with personal crises like depression, substance abuse, and sexual misconduct. But this is the point where Shama, in his own words, is stonewalled by the diocese in Helena and can't get any answers as to why Kerrigan was sent to Hemez Springs. In his frustration, he gives an interview to the Associated Press to try and get the word out and shake some new information loose. And it works, and it opens up a fascinating new wrinkle in the case. starts to look into Kerrigan's um, um, association with MS Springs and he forms a relationship with these authorities in, in New Mexico um, and he learns that nine months after um, Kerrigan had gone missing that the body of father Ronaldo Rivera was also found on a, on a remote desert road outside of Santa Fe. On the night of August 5th, 1982, a man who said that his name was Michael Carmelo called the Basilica of St. Francis in Santa Fe, New Mexico. He said that his grandfather was dying and had requested his last rites. The first priest who answered the phone was unable to drive at night due to bad vision. 
and asked the man to call back in a few minutes. Father Ronaldo Rivera answered the second call and agreed to head out and meet the man at a rest stop near Waldo, where the man said that he'd be waiting in a blue pickup truck. Father Rivera's body was found in a muddy field a few miles away from the rest stop a few days later. He had been shot in the stomach and strangled with some kind of metal wire, quite possibly from a metal coat hanger. Some of the similarities between Father Rivera's murder and Father Kerrigan's disappearance a couple years later are really striking. Like, can this really be a coincidence striking? Both men were 58-year-old Franciscan priests. They drove literally the exact same model and color of car, and both of their cars had been driven away from the crime scene and wiped for fingerprints. Rivera had been strangled with a metal wire that could have easily resembled the mangled, bloody coat hanger found with Kerrigan's clothes. We've got a little bit here that, um, you know, starts to lead Shama and some New Mexico authorities uh, to believe, okay, maybe we could, you know, somebody's out, there's a, uh, there's someone's out there is killing priests. They even did an episode of Unsolved Mysteries about the two cases. Father Ronaldo Rivera of Santa Fe, New Mexico has been murdered, and Father John Kerrigan of Ronan, Montana has mysteriously disappeared. Authorities fear these two cases, 1,000 miles and two years apart, may be connected. It is even possible that there's a serial killer at large who is exclusively murdering Catholic priests. But were those two cases actually connected? But we're getting into uh, something interesting is like the authorities are they, um, in New Mexico, they're sparring kind of publicly over the relevance of the Montana case to their investigation. Uh, uh, there were some great pieces in like the Santa Fe, New Mexican, where, you know, and I don't think you see this a lot. You have like the, like the, the deputy police chief um, said he had a gut feeling that the two crimes were tied to the same individual and again, perhaps even a serial killer. And even in the, I think in the unsolved mysteries, you see that too. Yeah. Um, the where, guy gets interviewed and where, yeah. where the, one of the de- authorities and one of the detectives is saying, yeah, I think we've got a, a serial killer. So we're, we're going to go down that route because one of the, the deputy police chief in Santa Fe is saying, okay, I think we've got the same person, but then um, we've got a, a New Mexico state police detective who's going to reject his counterpart's claim um, and was adamant. I mean, I think he said there was, you know, quote unquote, there was no connection whatsoever. And I can't remember if, if he was also in that, in that unsolved mysteries. But Mm. uh, so now we got to look into maybe some possible connections to, you know, connection to, to other mysteries. Um, The escapees from the youth camp, um, they were all apprehended within a 
week, um, there was no connection ever established. And then we've got another interesting, you know, angle was that Reed Niven to his mention who yeah. killed a woman in Polson in her home. Um, he was in, in Ronan the night that Kerrigan vanished, mm. but there was no evidence um, of his involvement. So we're not, you know, there wasn't anything sculptory, but there wasn't anything that could incriminate him. So we've got other stuff kind of, you know, hanging out there. Yeah. Um, but um, the police couldn't establish any, you know, criminal association between Kerrigan's case and the disappearance of Reverend Anderson in Townsend a couple of years earlier. If you look at Anderson's background a little bit, it's, he, he had some some mental health issues. Um, yeah, some of that could be explained away. Um, oh, it looks like he um, was having domestic problems. It looks like he was also getting you know in trouble um, at his um, at his uh, his facility and at the church that he worked at. He, it looks like there were some rumors that that, um, that he was about to be fired. But as, as a side note, 92, about 10 years after his disappearance, uh, Reverend Anderson's Volkswagen is found abandoned mm. um, in the Big Belt Mountains in northeast of Townsend. But um, the body, his body, has never been located either. Mm. Um, there's another kind of a tantalizing component to it, only because of the proximity and, and mm. the time frame. Yeah. Is uh, so two days after Kerrigan goes missing, he's last seen. There's a 31 year old school teacher named Curtis Holman goes missing in Missoula. So Holman is a math teacher at the Target Range Elementary School. He's last seen in Missoula on July the 22nd, 1984. 12 days later, his Toyota pickup truck is found abandoned on a logging road around Placid Lake. Some speculation, um, nothing, nothing solid, nothing substantive. Um, you know, as a, you know, the, the name has been brought up as a possible link or, or, or connection to. It. I think Holman's brother at one point gave an interview to the Missoulian when he, you know, he told the reporter he thought that his brother's fate could be entwined or connected to Father Kerrigan. But again, I mean, uh, we're looking at things that are um, that seem very, you know, very. You know, flimsy or they just have no um, never had any evidence to you know, mm. kind of buttress or kind of support the argument and right. then and then Paul Shama just seems to disappear too as the case cools off in 1985 Paul Shama abruptly leaves his post and moves away from Lake County uh, with little to no explanation at the time at least of why. But the investigation continues under new leadership. So we've got um, a new sheriff, a guy named you know, Joe Geldrich. Um, and, and there's uh, there's some, what would you call them? There's some thinly veiled you know, references uh, to a, a suspect about to be named. Mm. Um, we see pieces starting to appear again in the summer of 1985 from Geldrich saying there, you know, he doesn't want to name the suspect, but there's a suspect who's quote unquote now in Montana. Mm. We start to see a couple little pieces of information kind of um, coming out that um, you know Geldrich wants to quote unquote take. Uh, uh, he's going to take action, but before he takes action, he wants to accumulate additional evidence. Mm. Um, so. Interesting enough, there you know, um, Geldrich had told 
uh, uh, the Associated Press that the chances of solving the case look very good. That was the summer of 1985. Mm. Um, we have not had a follow-up report on that progress, um, and that was the last time any such a prognostication was made mm. you know, as to finding Kerrigan's killer. And that's where we stand. I mean, right. it's really the summer of 1995. But there's been a little ink, and there's been a little publicity um, here and there, um, but there's been uh, no other prognostications. There's never been, you know, never been an arrest. There's never been um, an apprehension. There's never been um, you know, a body that materialized that seemed to fit Kerrigan, and, and uh, you know, we didn't run out one day in, in the woods somewhere on the divide and find anyone and some bones and run it and yeah. try to give it, you know, run it through the uh, the crime lab. So. So this is where we are. The case goes completely cold. And it stays that way for like 30 years. And then it starts to heat back up again. So Kerrigan, and what happened to Kerrigan, the conjecture surrounding Kerrigan starts to reemerge um, in about April 2015. When the when the Roman Catholic Diocese of Helena settles a large civil suit alleging that several priests had been sexual abusers, so the lawsuit charges um, that the church leaders repeatedly reassign those priests to new parishes, were giving them no punishment but uh, but an admonition to to stop yeah. stop molesting. So we, yeah. so um, there's a there's a big uh, there's a settlement. Part of the settlement, there's a disclosure list of, of the, uh, the nuns um, and the priests um, who had allegedly sexually abused children in Western Montana. And Kerrigan was on the Roman Catholic Diocese of Helena's list of quote-unquote child sexual predators. So. Right, and and Sh- and Shama did, couldn't. Uh, maybe he did. You know, um, he could have known that. I mean, uh, could um, he probably had a hunch? Yeah. Or had a suspicion. I mean, as I mean, as soon as Shama got close to Hamas Springs, um, did he make the? Did he, did he start to connect the dots? Um, he couldn't have known about you know in 1985 that yeah. all these years later you know, 20 or 30 years later that the list is going to be revealed, you know, and that Kerrigan's going to be on that list. So, um, but yes, I mean, the, 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 the prolific amount of parishes, um, the fact that he had been at three in one year, again, ipso facto by the fact itself doesn't, you know, prove any type of criminal conduct or um or deviant behavior but when you start to take into the the totality of the circumstances and you start to look at uh this report that had come out in 2015 you know there's a natural sort of leap that 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 one would take so um but we got another you know a couple little twists here so uh um the you know the former Lake County Sheriff you know who started working the case in eighty five, um, you know Geldrich um, I contacted him twice in, in twenty twenty. Um, he 
said that he that he did not um, he think that that Kerrigan was uh, was a victim of, of revenge. Um, an extremely reticent with information uh, for, for for obvious reasons and for various reasons. So now we have we have Geldridge, who also is a private investigator currently, who's like the former Lake County Sheriff, who was not part of the it was not at the crime scene because and and he's coming into a hard situation because he's not at the at the initial scene. Right. He's the investigator who comes make up lost ground. Comes afterwards, exactly. It's just trying to make up lost ground. But um, there's two things that that are not insignificant about about the conversations I had with Geldrich, one of which is um, he doesn't believe the theory that that a victim of Kerrigan has acted out of revenge. It's important. I mean, I mean, you know, he's going to flat out reject that theory. Yeah, you you would have to imagine he has at least some pieces of information that are compelling enough to him. To, you know, just because looking at it from thirty thousand feet as we are, like knowing what we know now, you would assume that that would must be sort of the crucial motivating factor in all of this. Would be some sort of abuse related thing, and you, yeah, you have to wonder. What does he? What does he know that makes him so sure that that's not a factor? Right. Well, yeah. And, and to and to make a you know and, uh, so to you know to declare that publicly. Yeah. So I mean, if you're in a camp of thought and you're looking at different camps of thoughts and you're taking, you've got a board and you're looking at okay, well, he's the victim of uh, you know of uh, you know of, of revenge or if you know revenge is the motive and you know he had abused someone and that person and. You know, knew where he was. Maybe it was someone in Plains, which only an hour away, or maybe yeah. people were privy to the fact that he was going to New Paris, and um, a victim of Kerrigan sort of acted out out of a, a homicidal revenge. It's a great camp of thought. I mean, it's an obvious one. That, it's yeah, it, yeah, it's as you know, it's as obvious as Pinocchio's nose, as far as like yeah. being like a, a a possible motive, and and it isn't compelling and impelling. It's just one of those things where, um, okay, you know, what well, you know. We're gonna weigh. You'd probably work with that as like a starting point, but um, that's if you knew that he had already been in trouble. Yeah. If you knew, and Gelger's the two things that were not insignificant is a, um, he's gonna flat out reject the theory that uh, that um, Kerrigan had been killed by someone who knew him, who was acting out of revenge, and he confirmed that that they were aware that authorities were aware of the allegations of child sexual abuse involving Kerrigan back then. Um, to me, that's fascinating. To me, that says, well, this is, we're going back to 1985. So if the police knew about it in, in, in the community, did they know right when he died by doing a series of interviews? Did they know, were there allegations pending? Did they Were they made in planes that week yeah. or the week before, yeah. the week prior? Um, so if Lake County knew, and he'd been in Lake County, he'd been in Plains, um, where did they come from and by whom? And I think those are things that we, as we continue to, to dig, those are the, the, the goals that we're, were contacted by people connected to this case who will be able to illuminate that, that truth. So here we are, uh, back in 1985 again. And Geldrich has said that the police knew about the allegations against Father Kerrigan and the diocese knew about them. 
But did the diocese know that the police knew? And did anybody know more than they're willing to let on? And what could the implications of all these questions be? Was it tolerated? You know, was it something that was just accepted? Um, you know, how powerful and pervasive was the diocese in Montana in 1905? Um, was there pressure um, to sweep this under the rug in the proverbial sense? That, um, was there pressure to, you know, on the police department to to not look at the allegations was there pressure um, to just let the disappearance stand as a disappearance you know so there's all kind kind not to investigate you know some of the circumstances of, of Kerrigan's disappearance I mean and the genuine question I mean, the question that uh, is the most intriguing is is was it in fact um, a homicide? After this break, the fascinating life of Paul Shama and his never-before-reported theory of the case. Hey everyone, we really hope you're enjoying Montana Murders, Notorious and Unsolved, the podcast. But if you're interested in more Montana true crime, you should check out my co-host, Brian D'Ambrosio's new book. It's also called Montana Murders, Notorious and Unsolved. And while it is the basis for this show and includes the cases we'll cover, it also gets into so much more than we have time for, covering dozens of Montana's most infamous killings. Similar to this episode, Brian unearths some gruesome and little-known facts in almost every case in the book, drawing on official investigation reports and numerous personal interviews with law enforcement officials, witnesses, and survivors. Brian describes each murder like a good detective story. Readers will find riveting details about the murderers, their motives and methods, and their unfortunate victims. You can get a copy directly from Riverbed Publishing right now. That's riverbendpublishing.com to get a copy of Brian's new book. This podcast is also brought to you by a longtime Montana Mint supporter, the Hotel Finland in Uptown Butte. In Montana, chains are for tires, not for hotels. And the Hotel Finland is a unique, locally owned and operated hotel that offers reasonably priced, luxurious options. The Hotel Finland is located walking distance from most of the best places to eat in town. If you're in town for a conference, visiting family, or to investigate uh, notorious or unsolved murder, 
the Hotel Finland is the only place for you to stay. Do the right thing and experience all that Butte has to offer. Get your room today at finland.com. That's F-I-N-L-E-N.com. We mentioned at the top of the show that Montana Murders, Notorious and Unsolved, is part of the Montana Mint Podcast Network. The Montana Mint does a ton to help support local journalism and local content creation, including supporting this podcast. If you want to see more content like this, help support the Mint by buying some awesome gear in their store. The Montana Mint store is constantly rolling out new Montana-focused designs. The holidays are right around the corner, and gear from the Montana Mint makes the perfect present. Check them out at montanamint.com. That's montana-mint.com. Welcome back. In this last part of the episode, we're looking into the life of Paul Shama. If you remember from earlier, Shama was the first lead detective in the case before he also seemed to vanish mysteriously in 1985. When Brian was first reporting this case last year, there was something about Shama that just stuck out to him, and it motivated him to start looking for clues into Shama's backstory. I started looking around, and, and you look in the newspaper, like different archives, different searches, there's very little, precious little about, about Shama. And then when you don't see anything, you get more intrigued. So, um, I, you know, and, and then it seems like Shama is all, has all, all but vanished himself. So we've got the vanishing of a priest and the, the, the vanishing of, of the, the lead inspector and the lead investigator on the case. Um, I looked in death records, you know, and obituaries under that name and multiple record searches and zero. Zilch! You know, it's like Shama disappeared when Kerrigan disappeared. There's like parallel lines. You know, they just never met, they never intersected. They were just kind of both gone. And uh, a couple months after um, I did a piece for Flathead Living on the anniversary of, of Kerrigan's disappearance, and I got an, an email uh, through Facebook from Paul's daughter, and, and and this is this is one of these things that you know the things that give you goosebumps. I mean the things that you know you know that are titillating. I mean the things that provide you know fulfillment and excitement are these these kind of these messages. Like that. she says, "I'm Paul Shaman's daughter. I have to talk to you about Father Kerrigan and tell you what my dad had told me about Kerrigan. I have you know, everything that you ever want to read, everything you ever want to see." So. I give the phone number, and I, you know, I, I leave. I said, "Yeah, within, yeah, I respond immediately. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Anything that um, yeah. you have that I could look at or, or read, I, I would love to know, like who your dad was. I would love to know, you know, mm-hmm. you know what he, what he was like. I like to know what he looked like. You know, I like mm-hmm. to see pictures. Um, so we begin a correspondence, and yeah. so you know, we speak at length. You know multiple times and over the course of our conversations and our interviews Vanessa starts to produce 
thing items that lead one to to the inner world and interior arena of Paul Shama. And it gets really, really convoluted. I talked a little bit earlier about all of the scenes in this story that strike me as really undeniably cinematic. Moments and images that are so complete and compelling that they feel like they have to have been scripted. Well, if there's anybody in this story who would have to be the star of this movie, you know, the protagonist, it would have to be Paul Sharma. Paul's daughter tells Brian that before he was a detective in Lake County, Montana, he had spent years as an undercover officer infiltrating the Hells Angels in California and at a great personal risk to himself, had been involved in a case that sent many of their higher-ups to prison. And you can imagine that after that life, he would have wanted to get out and away from all that chaos, settle down to a quieter life up in the Flathead, only for him to then get caught up in the Kerrigan disappearance. And then on top of that, sometime in 1985, according to his daughter, Paul's identity was revealed to the people that he helped put behind bars and a bounty is put on his head and he has to leave the flathead with his family and assume new identities in a different part of the country. But even with all that drama in his life unrelated to Father Kerrigan, this case seems to have had a profound impact on Paul. So much so that his daughter reached out to Brian to tell him about it. So she's looking for her dad and look, or looking for information, looking for stories about, about her dad. So she comes across the Kerrigan case and is just floored. She says, you know, my dad um, had left, we had left, we'd come to the, mid, come to the Midwest, had started um, working under, uh, under an assumed name, under a fictitious name. And, uh, and then she told, tells me that, uh, you know, about him and what he was like and all, you know, what he felt about Kerrigan and how he kept these notes and, and he recorded all these interviews and he was painstaking. He would talk about Kerrigan often. He would talk about, would come home. And, and I think there were several siblings. I think they were all girls, if I can remember. Um, so here's this big old papa, like this old kind of, you know, beefy kind of brawny looking guy, you know, with a handlebar mustache sent me a couple photos of him i was intrigued he's got a big old tumbler in his hand and he looks cool like him my dad was a was a police officer um i like those photos you know they bring something back you know for me but you know they resonate the 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 the, the polaroids of the old man you know like um so with those funky shirts, you know, with the great patterns from like yeah, the 70s yeah. and 80s. So, so I get to know Sean Paul a little bit. You know? I love learning about Paul. Um, and, and, and alas, and, and sadly, I find out that Paul was murdered. Paul it was killed uh, while he was um, working as a, uh, a del- as a uh, manager at a, at a fast food restaurant without giving with too many details is, you know, about 
about Paul's identity at the time. Paul was um, was murdered, you know, in, in cold blood in what all but appears to be an assassination um, in his vehicle as he was leaving his his um, his job one night. In a job. But uh, but there's a secret of Father Kerrigan in with you know does it does it lie with Paul Shaman because um, Shaman leaves notes and he and in his notes he's uh, he is adamant um, it's very specific and clear that Father Kerrigan uh, with with the aid and the consent of the diocese fled to, to Mexico. Think about it. You're like, holy. I mean, Lord, you, yeah. then you, know, you start to go backwards from that. You're and you're like, never found a body. Right. Pile of neat folded bloody clothes. Like, if you're gonna stage a murder, it sounds right. like it's, this all seems like a good way to do it. And that's the twist. And yeah. that's something that's never been we, we. It's never been revealed. It couldn't have been revealed to Unsolved Mysteries because they couldn't have. Mm-hmm. You know, they they were. It was filmed 30 years ago. They had no knowledge that Kerrigan was on the list. The narrative was that there was a homicidal priest. Now we should quickly say here that this theory comes from Paul's notes and from his daughter's recollections. We can't necessarily corroborate anything as fact at this point, but Paul and his daughter are both very adamant about their belief in this case. That if the lead investigator on that case at that time kept the notes and wrote down, this is what happened, I believe this to this day, and would come home and tell his family and tell his kids, sit on my lap, I'll tell you some cop stories, you're not going to believe this one. And by that time, you know, like they were out of Montana, and there was something about, I think, the Kerrigan case um, that kept Montana alive. For, for Paul, I mean, maybe it was it was the the only link that he might have had to his old life. You know, maybe there was something about the Kerrigan case that he brought up, brought up at dinner, brought up at at bedtime. You know, yeah, would bring up, fixated. yeah, fixated. Um, yeah. You know, with notes, and he kept um, copious amount notes, and, and anything that he had written down seemed to support. The theory that it was it that, that this was fabricated. Fascinating. I mean, so this yeah. is where we are. This is we've got something. Yeah. You know, yeah. we've got a new theory that we, you know we can pose to you know pose to um, to folks is that um, it was staged. Yeah. I mean, think about a yeah. you know, you've got a bloody shovel and you got a bloody wire hanger. You've got bloody clothes. Yeah. And we've got we've got blood, copious amounts of blood. So. Um, one thing in in Paul's notes was that there he had written down that there was a a robbery at a blood bank he was looking into that there was a robbery at a blood bank in the flathead that that, that blood had been taken and that's where the blood came from he said in his notes he's vivid and clear no way 
that that was that that was one human being. There was enough blood, uh, according to Shalma's notes, to indicate that there uh, that this was um, this was someone who took more, you know, who had dumped, or a person, or a couple people who had dumped and poured and saturated the vehicle with more blood than one person could even could even. It is intriguing, but the fact that um, the the, the Chamas was very specific and adamant, um, and, and we see like in any of the, the published reports or any of the documents available about the case, and a lot of the, the documents are, are redacted. Um, the blood, the amount of blood, like the prodigious amount of blood, the copious amounts of blood, and, and smeared in, in in again all in the trunk, hood. I mean, I had trunk dashboard. Passenger side door, driver side door. Um, could someone have, have, have staged that that scene, and could that someone have been Father Kerrigan and, and others unknown? So now we have a fascinating, you know, tantalizing enigmas. Yeah. Well, what could have happened to to Kerrigan, and and, yeah. and could could in theory could it be possible? Absolutely. If we're talking about cinematic moments and scenes in this story, this one would have to be the end. Something Brian talked about that has really stayed with me is this idea of Kerrigan and Shama as parallel lines. Two people on opposite ends of a story who traverse the same path but never intersect. And you can picture this final scene cutting between the two of them on the road, leaving Ronan. Maybe Kerrigan has a new passport. Know, new papers, a new name. And both men are fleeing something completely different under new assumed identities. Sadly, we know how Shama's story ended. It's an execution in a fast food parking lot. But we don't know how Kerrigan's story ended. Did he escape something? Did he make it to Mexico? If he made it, could he still be alive? He'd be in his 90s, so it's not impossible. Does someone have a family photo somewhere from a vacation to Monterey or something in the 90s? And in the background, if you look really closely, there's a, a, a figure out of focus, you know, standing off in the back who looks strikingly similar to Father John Kerrigan. Like so much in this story, it's hard to know what to believe and how much to believe it. There's a, there's a, a thread there um, that we can pull out that, that's ultimately very, very human um, and something that we could find, you know, like I said, a, a modicum of, of uh, you know, catharsis in for people. Um, and, you know, we're looking at you know, a lot of, in many of these stories, they're, they're there, there's, there, it's all bad. I mean, we're dealing with yeah. some of the worst elements 
But inside that, we've got, you know, a guy who perhaps posthumously, through it, through his daughter doing a Google search, you know, helped uh, shed light and illuminate uh, a great truth. Yeah, and crack open, like, you know, a case that, like you said, had been cold for 30 years a little bit, you know, like, kind of just add, you know, I, what kind of strikes me about this case so much is um, the ambiguity of everything that happened around it makes it so that, like, kind of whatever um, potential cause you, like, want to pick, you know, whether it's a serial killer who killed Father Ronaldo in New Mexico or it was uh, Nevins who had killed a woman in Polson or is an inside job and it was a stage and he's in New Mexico. Like, just whichever one you kind of want to pick, you can follow it down to whatever, you know, extent that you want um, and just because there's such a blank, ambiguous, you know, core event that happened without much explanation. And, um, you know, just, I think that's, what's super interesting about it. It's just that it's kind of like a pick your own, it can be sort of a pick your own reality version of the story of just like, well, which one, you know, makes the most sense to you or which one is the most captivating to you? Well, you can follow that trail down as deep as you want. Well, that's why I'm working on, 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 on a new book. It's a uh, choose your own adventure ending yeah. for the Father Ker- yeah. Kerrigan case. Um, so if you want to go down, you know, Reverend Anderson, you can s- skip to page 47. Yeah. Yeah. If you're interested in perhaps the Holman link, you can go to 58. Um, so we can we can choose our own adventure here and choose our own ending. And if you feel as if uh, you know Kerrigan got away scot free. Um, you can go down that route, that route as well. But matters such as these are always, you know, they're bi-directional and they're, yeah, they're multi-dimensional and, um, and they have lots of angles and slants and places to go in. And, um, and ultimately, you know, what do we have? I mean, we have, we you know, we're not any, any closer to it, but we have something, um, a new way of looking at things. Yeah. You know? Another thread to right. chase down to another, the end. Yeah. yeah. Another thread. And I, I, I don't know how, if that thread has ever really been explored. And, and by this time it's all, it's all buried. I mean, it's all been, you know, if Shama was stonewalled in his own words back then, I mean, do you think anyone, you're going to go into the, the records department over at the diocese and say, Hey, you know what? I, Give me what you got on on Kerrigan because everything's been destroyed. Yeah. He they just uh, Shama had had written that the records is on on Kerrigan's time in Hamez Springs had been destroyed. So, so that's you know that's what we have and we have the yeah the the, the vanishing of a priest that um, can be considered just that yeah. vanishing and we're. And where um, Kerrigan ended up, perhaps we'll never know.
Thanks for listening to the first episode of Montana Murders, Notorious and Unsolved. Come back next week for the story of Spider McCallum, a larger-than-life figure straight out of Montana myth. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe to the feed so you don't miss an episode, and leave us a review with some other Montana murders you want us to cover. Montana Murders, Notorious and Unsolved, is a production of the Montana Mint Podcast Network. It is produced by myself and Brian D'Ambrosio, along with Rory Murphy at The Mint. I do all the audio producing and editing on the show, and our cover art was designed by Sarah over at The Mint. Music in this episode is by Logic Moon, Jesse Gallagher, Chris Hagen, The Tower of Light, and Jeremy Corpus.